Welcome to Ride Around the Road, the creative podcast that helps you get those pesky voices out of your head and onto the page. And remember, it's the journey that matters. Welcome to episode 111 of Writer on the Road. Today we've got the ever-generous Kevin Tumlinson with us again. Uh, Kevin works at draft to digital as their marketing guru and he's also an expert novelist. Now, I've had this guy on the podcast many, many times and he is full of uh, good advice for the rest of us coming along behind. But just before we start, I want to talk to you about what I'm up to with um, my book, Publishing for Authors Implementation program that I'm that I'm working through uh, because of the generosity of Paul Brody of Paul Brody Education who is sponsoring the podcast for the next little while so this week we've been working on book covers and cover design so I've actually had to pull my stuff down and start again because like with everything else that I do in my life I've been doing it all wrong now we worked through colors we worked through fonts we worked through titles and subtitles uh, and very shortly I'll be launching my 30 Days to Better Writing Habits, and I've had to change the title of that, Uh, so I'll be releasing that cover very, very shortly, and it's got all the tricks that Paul has taught me. Next week in the Book Publishing for Authors um, Implementation Program, gosh, I wish he'd changed that title, but he's refusing, Uh, we are going to be working on the back cover, we're going to be working on the copy, and the sales copy is so important, what we put on the back there, so I'm looking forward to sharing with you what I learn Uh, in that process. In the meantime, uh, we've got our writing guidelines, our Voices in Your Head writing guidelines. They're there if you want to download them for free from the website. The workbook is ready to go. It's, It's up there ready for for sale and last but not least our our voices in your head writing courses are ready to go as well if you need to leave a review for the podcast which would be very very nice it's come to my attention that nobody actually knows quite how to do it now there's a little button on my website on our episodes page that says um i think it says leave a review or something like that um but because it's audio no one ever actually goes to the to the website so nobody ever sees it Uh, you can also go direct to itunes and work your way through the process there so that would be much appreciated and apparently I'm supposed to put a little instruction manual up on my website which I haven't got around to yet. Uh, Here at Rider on the Road we're on holidays as usual and we're trotting off down to New South Wales uh, in northern New South Wales down at Ballina there to deliver some workshops over the next couple of weeks which is really exciting. Um, As you know we always love getting on the road and heading off on adventures In the meantime here, uh, we've got Kevin coming up this week. Next week we'll have Joanna Penn. And I've got another guy coming on uh, and he's just about to release, I think it's going to be this New York bestseller, uh, New York Times bestseller. And it is just an amazing story. I've been reading it this morning. And it's how a young man managed to interview some of the best minds in the world and how he went about it. So I'm really excited to share that one with you in the in the next few weeks. And his name's Alex Banyanyan, I think is how you pronounce it. I'm not quite sure, but I'll get that right before we get there. Okay, sit back, listen to Kevin. He's hilarious as always, generous as always, um, but a very, very knowledgeable man. And I love having him on the podcast every time. Good morning from Sunny Oz. Here we are talking to Kevin Tumlinson, uh, writer extraordinaire and marketing manager of draft to digital over in the big US of A. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, hello. Thank you for having me on. 
Yeah, I'll let you on a little secret, everybody. I just introduced him a moment ago as Tevin, um, but I deleted it and we're starting again so that I at least sound <laughs> somewhat normal. At That's what I like. I, I like when we go ahead and own up. <laughs> this is what I do on my show. You know, I make mistakes. I may start over, but I admit them all. That's yeah. what I like. I like that. Now, Kevin, we should always work like that. Yeah, Kevin <laughs> it has his own podcast and has been going for many, many years. Everyone, it's called Wordslinger, and he is my mentor and guru. And everything he does, I steal. So I, I stole our story slingers from Kevin uh, when I started out eighteen months ago, and I also stole something else from him. I've just put out something: the thirty days to better writing habits. But Kevin is the king bee of the thirty day book publishing or something like that and now yeah. Kevin and this is the third thing I've got to talk to you about you are doing a bit of a pivot with your podcast and doing something with indie publishing so I think that's a really good place to start well and and of course indie publishing was always my thing but the yeah I'm doing some I'm doing some brand new stuff all around my my marketing for my books I'm doing some uh uh on the podcast I'm doing some stuff that's meant to uh to help the indie author you know sort of build the, their indie author career. So I've been basically repurposing some old content, updating it and uh, po posting it as eBooks on the site. Um, because a lot of that is stuff that I think, you know, my listenership could, could really get into really use that's become difficult to find online now. So yeah, that's the new, that's the new kickoff for words like your podcast at least. Yeah. And you need to have a look, everybody. This guy is amazing. He, when I met Kevin, Oh, what, five books ago, he had just yeah. put out the Kaelo Medallion, and I always pronounce that incorrectly, and I'm just going to cover that one up. Uh, he <laughs> changed from science fiction writing into thriller writing. He is now an international and best-selling author with book number five just being released, The Girl in the Mayan Tomb. Uh, congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, – and I was very, like, really excited about that one. That, that one was kind of the first – uh, it, was, it was something of a departure from the other books in, in small ways uh, because it was the first where I was trying out a bunch of new stuff. I changed the way I do quite a bit of what of uh, all the work surrounding the publishing, uh, particularly the, the writing, the, the way I write the books hasn't changed. Um, but, you know, I've, I've gotten to a level now where I know I can write the book. I know I can write it in X number of days. Uh, I know how to produce the book. Uh, formatting and all that stuff, all that's been taken care of. Thanks, thanks now to Draft Digital for our, you know, our cool free formatting tools. Throw that in there real quick. Uh, so you know, now it's down to refining how I actually market the work. Um, and I was doing what everyone else was doing for the longest time. I was, you know, getting on Facebook. I was creating ads, creating uh, Amazon uh, marketing service ads, and. You know, anything I could do to actually promote the work, I, I was doing pretty much the same stuff you hear about all the time and uh, getting decent results. But I wanted to refine um, more of my process, both in the marketing and in the production. Uh, I, I don't know a better way to, to uh, describe that. It's not necessarily the actual production of the book. It's more that I've added layers to help with editing, uh, correcting some of the, you know, some of the problems I've had with books in the past and just sort of streamlining that part of the process. And it all folds into the marketing. <clears throat> um, and one of the coolest things I did recently, as of this new book, I have created something I call my typo reporter. Uh, it is a, long story short, it's a form on my website 
I, I have a special URL, right? I put this this blurb in the front and the back of every book now. It says what to do if you find a typo. And it gives them a URL and it says uh, uh, if you go here, you can you can just drop in the title of the book and the typo you found. That's all you got to do. Just cut and paste so that I can do a search and find it. Uh, I give them the format and everything. But uh, once they do that and I have a little checkbox that says, yes, it is OK to include me in your change log. And I'm stealing this from the software industry, but a change log in software is where you would list all the changes you've made in, in a uh, piece of software, uh, thanks to beta testers and that sort of thing. Uh, that's basically what I'm doing. I'm using the reader to help me spot any problems with the book. They let me know about it, and then I include their name in that book from that point forward, and, you know, until the end of time. Um, I was not prepared for how much people loved being able to do that. because. <laughs> Now you're you're interacting with me on a different level. Um, I've always gotten emails from readers saying, you know, I uh, I found a typo. Here's something I found. Here's a problem. You left this. You changed this character's name. You know, there's little things like that have happened since the beginning of my writing career. But now they have a place to put that. I give them a specific format that makes it easier for me to fix it. And uh, the reward is they get their their name in that book, and so it's sort of like crowdsourcing the editing. So uh, that's just part of my editing process now. But it's 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 become a vital part because it's not only does it help with improving the book, it in, it has increased the engagement I have with the readers, and it has um, it has led to more marketing opportunities uh, because people you know now I I. I I'm starting to get some specifics about my list that I didn't have before. And I'm starting to, to learn new things about that list and uh, learn, learn the things that people sort of home in on when they're, <laughs> when they're annoyed with the work, you know? So it's, it's helping me just really improve the work as I go. It's one of many things I've been impl I've implemented, but that's that's my favorite so far. Yeah. Now that's interesting, everyone, because I bought Kevin's book last night and I I was reading it, and I went through to the back of the book and I saw this list of names. Now this book is just out, and you already have twelve people on your on your typo reporter list. Uh, right. Now. With a new book out and having 12 people already engaging with you and quite intimately with your, with your story, that's, that's obviously a good thing. What, what do you say to them when, when, you say, when they email you and say, oh, Kevin, you've spelt this wrong again? Oh, I, I, I'm, very, I'm effusively happy with these people. Like I, I, I thank them. I, uh, I tell them how much I really appreciate the, the effort they went through because it's not exact. I mean, it's not, as it's not as easy as a push of a button. You know, they, they actually have to take the time to copy and paste that URL and drop it in. Um, but I just, I, I just follow over myself uh, with gratitude for them. And then I may ask them follow-up questions or whatever, but I'll, I'll always tell them, you know, I'm going to include you in the change log. I'm so, so happy that you uh, helped me improve the book. Um, with my entomb, it, you know, I included the names of the, uh, uh, of my street team who actually contributed um, some feedback. So there's, there are a few, few of those names on the list as well, but I've had, you know, uh, quite a few people actually pop in and, uh, send me feedback since they've been reading it. It's it's been great. And the other the other side of that is they're, they're much more likely now that they're engaged with that book personally. They're much more likely to share that with other people. 
So they do. There's a little bit of word of mouth marketing that happens. I, I'm going to tell you, I um, about two months ago now, I decided to stop all of my advertising. So I pulled all my Facebook ads, all my Amazon ads. I pulled everything off, and uh, I changed my marketing approach. Now this may not be a permanent thing. I'm I'm planning to add, you know, ads back in, but right now. My primary marketing is uh, I've got my cultivated list, right? I've got my my email list of readers that I know love my work, are, are always willing to read anything I put out, and they're always willing to leave reviews. Um, I changed the marketing message. Uh, basically, I used to send these very polished, you know, uh, I've worked in marketing for, for years. I used to send these very polished emails with, you know, very fancy email headers and a lot of graphics and you know, it was all in marketing speak, really. Um, I took all that stuff out, and I write a very personal feeling email to my list now. Um, very, you know, just just really, uh, more a little more vulnerable. Uh, I reveal a bit more about myself personally. There's there's little, you know, I don't I don't go overboard with it, but there's little touches of as if you were getting an email from a friend or family member. Um, and I almost always ask some open-ended question that, that, you know, the reader may want to answer, uh, via email. And what I found is it's, it's been pretty remarkable. Um, my, my engagement and I'm measuring engagement at this point with the open rate, click through rate and the, uh, responses I'm getting, um, it's going way up. I, I also had a problem, uh, for years now <laughs> with, even people who've been on my list for several, you know, for months or even years would suddenly mark the emails as spam. And, uh, that's problematic, of course, for a lot of different reasons. Um, I've seen that go down, you know, whereas I might get like 10 people out of 35,000, uh, email recipients mark the email as spam. Now I, I'm, I may get one. And, uh, that's a, that's a pretty significant difference, you know? It makes a great, great deal of difference. So, you know, these little changes, it's been interesting to see the impact. Um, I respond to every email I get, of course. I, I am uh, very open to talking to people. I get a lot of my readers, uh, they love to tell me personal details about their <laughs> about their lives. Uh, one, one lady tells me all about her um, – her daughter's horses, uh, which I I love hearing about her horses. I mean, I I don't particularly care about horses, you know, in general, but I will listen to her all day long. Tell me all all about her, her you know, the latest riding contest she won or whatever, because it's meaningful to her, you know. So if it's meaningful to her, it's meaningful to me. So that's, I mean, it's it's hard to boil that down into a nice bullet list for authors to follow, but I I think. Um, the lesson is to treat your readers like human beings and you get a lot more benefit out of it, out of that relationship. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something, everyone, that we really need to take on board, especially with the changing algorithms in Facebook and I think to some yes. extent Instagram as well. We need to, as authors, build our community. And Kevin's just given us some amazing tips on how to do that. Remember, we're listening to the expert here. Uh, I, do, I do follow everything that you say, Kevin, and I've been reading your emails. Now, I don't remember okay. reading them as... As much early on, uh, but the last few in particular, I've really paid attention to. I've, I was very interested in your um, personal road trip across. I think you were attending a conference or something, and it created mm -hmm. writing time or thinking time in the car. And I think 
That right. really resonated with me because I don't think we take that time out or have that space to think anymore. And people are churning out their books, uh, but they're not taking the time to think. Would you suggest that um, over time, because you're now up to book five in this amazing series, that uh, taking out time to think is helping improve your writing as you delve deeper into the writing process? Yeah, it absolutely is because uh, the stuff that I'm writing now, it, not that it didn't take a lot of thought when I was writing science fiction, uh, you know, and that other that other work, but um, because it absolutely did. And I read scientific papers and I read academic papers. Uh, I did a lot of research for those, and I do the same stuff for these books. Um, but what it does, you know, I take time out to just you know take a walk, take a drive, take a shower. Uh, you know, anything to kind of shift gears mentally and let my mind wander so that um, I can come up with connections. I, I solved a couple of problems with the, uh, the current book uh, on that road trip. You know, a couple of, a couple of uh, mental leaps happened that are going to allow me to, to bridge, a, you know, two or three different uh, you know, plot points that didn't really feel connected before. Uh, and it was because of that that I was able to get a jump start on actually, you know, writing the first two or three chapters. Um, and I think we do we do need that sort of time. Um, and I know it's not always possible for people to just take take time for that. But, I, you know, I took advantage of a road trip that I was going to make anyway uh, rather than listen to a bunch of, you know, uh, music that I've heard a thousand times or whatever, I, I did listen to music, but I, you know, I get that stuff going and I, I, I let my mind wander. Uh, it, it was wonderfully relaxing, really. It was sort of cathartic <laughs> to be sitting in one spot, uh, essentially. And, uh, and you know, the, the scenery changes all around me every few feet and, you know, I'm getting uh, inspired by billboards and I'm getting inspired by, you know, lyrics from the songs and all that stuff uh, may or may not find its way into your book, but it, it's vital for you to give your brain that sort of, you know, mo I was going to say exercise, but it's actually sort of the opposite. It's almost like leisure time. Uh, it's a chance for your brain to just have fun, uh, just relax for a minute. And then uh, you start all these, you know, little synaptic connections start to form. You start to, you know, solve problems. You start to come up with new, new plots. Yeah. It's, just, it's, yeah, relaxing. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is something, everyone, that I work with my students on all the time, and we've just come off our 30 days to better writing habits. It's the subconscious. Uh, you've got to you've got to back off, and you've got to allow your subconscious to, to actually really work over that story. And the minute you switch off, and the minute you relax, and the minute you're out on the road um, driving across the American prairies or wherever you drive, it sounds so romantic, uh, it's, when you're, it's when all the work that you've done on the surface really starts to meld together uh, uh, deep down. Now, Kevin and I were talking just before the podcast about how how much um, your writing has improved, Kevin, and how you're noticing right. some some of the things that weren't the best they could be, they were the best they could be at the time when you were writing them, but now that you've gathered more experience over these five novels and all your science fiction beforehand, you're starting to look back and say, wow, I have grown so much of a as a writer, I can see how I can fix some of this stuff. Yeah, this is where the indie author really has an advantage over the traditionally published author. Um, we, uh, I, I practice what I like to call iterative publishing, which is I produce the book, um, 
but that final book, I get it as I get it as good as I can get it. I mean, I I do all the editing I can do. I pay editors. I have my street team to help me uh, find typos and and holes in the plot or whatever. Um, you know, I put all the work in and I create what you know in business we tend to call the minimal viable product, meaning it is as good as I can make it with the resources I have. And then I hit publish. I don't wait for perfection. Perfection is the enemy of done. That's what uh, Steve Jobs said, and I believe him. Um, but what's what's interesting about the approach of iterative publishing, you get the book as close to perfect as you're capable of getting it with the resources you have at your disposal and the time that you have. And then you commit to coming back to fix anything that uh, you find that's wrong with it later. Um, in particular, that's why I like this typo reporter. That's why I like having the interaction with the readers because the readers are the ones, you know, if they're going to get turned off by it, I mean, I want them to let me know, you know, and I also feel like this is a way to sort of, uh, apologize in advance for any problems they may find. <laughs> so it's good reader relations. Um, but yeah, if you're committed, as long as you're committed to coming back and improving the work as you go, uh, it'll be a tremendous benefit to you. What I've learned over the course of these five books, now I have around 40 to 43 books uh, written and published at this point. It's hard. It's always hard for me to put a number on it because I've, I've got so many that are w in the process of being published. <laughs> but uh, in this Dan Kotler series, the thriller series, there are um, four full-length novels and a, a novella and uh, a fifth novel on the way. And I've as I've written the series, I've learned more about the characters. I've learned more about sort of the brand of the books. And uh, because of the iterative publishing process, I'm able, I was able to go back to the beginning and fix the things that were wrong with that first book um, and, and make it, you know, bring it in line with the brand, bring it, bring it in line with the uh, characterization. Uh, all, all these things that I learned about Dan Kotler and Roland Denzel and their world through, through, essentially five books, um, there was no reason I couldn't go back and take advantage of that and improve the first book, which is exactly what I did. Um, I, after I, after I hit publish on uh, girl in the Mayan tomb, I went right back to the first book, uh, and, and just did a complete read through and rewrite using everything I had learned. I sent that, you know, back to the same channels um, and I got the same sort of feedback. And then I, uh, I put the typo reporter and a call to action and all the stuff that, you know, I've been preaching to people to put in these books and, and sent it back out into the world. And the result has been phenomenal. Uh, people who are discovering that book for the first time, you know, they read it like this is, a, this is an incredible debut novel. This is an amazing book, you know, uh, little knowing that I've completely cheated. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet there are a lot of traditionally published authors who wish they could do the same thing. I know it's like your first 10 podcasts that everybody has a bit of a whinge and complaint. Don't go back and listen to your first 10 podcasts because they're really bad. Yeah. And people who... I, are... I'm so off-brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my first... First, like, three or four shows, I'm completely off-brand. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm off-brand for my first 100. But I do know that indie publishing is something that is growing and that by building our brands around indie publishing that it can only go from strength to strength because more and more people are wanting to write. Uh, and yeah. 
And more and more people are sitting down and doing the work that it requires to become a writer, I think, and that's right. really, really good. But what we want to do now is we want to take it to the next level and we want them to focus on not producing a lot of content very quickly, but to slow down a bit and make their writing good. Uh, so that's why I'm interested yeah. in your in your repurposing a lot of your content and putting it out in little accessible guidebooks so that people can come yeah. aboard and take advantage. And if you haven't worked it out by now, everybody, this guy is, is um, definitely an expert in his field. And I guess just before I let you talk again, because I know I'll never get another word in edgewise, tell us more. Oh, yeah. Oh, always slap me with that. <laughs> I had to get it in. Sorry, I always, I always Belinda. get in trouble for that one. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Let's be serious. For anyone who hasn't listened yeah. to my first two or three podcasts with Kevin, he is a prolific writer. He probably – what would you write, Kevin, each day before you even get on with your main job of the day? How, what, 5,000 words? Yeah, I, I typically will do around 5,000 words. I have a minimum of 2,500. As long as I can hit 2,500, I've done my work for the day. Um, but I, I typically hit between five, sometimes up in around 10,000 words. It just depends on how, how much of a groove I've hit. Um, the key there of course is I've been writing every day, practically my whole life. Um, particularly once I decided I wanted to be an author, you know, you decide, um, the, the thing about writing a book is that it is a a book is a finite object. You can create that as long as you're willing to put in the time every day. You can you can sort of chip away at it until you have a final product. Um, it's a lot like you know I, I compare it to carving a statue out of a chunk of marble. You know uh, the key here is you actually have to have the marble before you can carve the statue. Carving is editing. <laughs> the actual sculpting is editing. Uh, but you have to actually have your manuscript before you can start editing. So I tell people, don't do not edit your work as you write. Um, write and then edit. And I've actually stolen a process from Dean Wesley Smith uh, that he calls looping. And uh, his process is he'll write 500 words and then he'll loop back and he'll edit those 500 words and then he'll continue on with the next 500. And he just repeats that until he hits his word goal for the day. Uh, I, I think that's a fantastic method. And uh, I, I sort of do it a little different in that I write my minimum of 2,500 words. And then I go back the next day. I pick up, I edit all that. And then I continue on to write my next 2,500 words each day. So, um, and I typically end up adding you know, I'll add more words <laughs> as I clarify ideas in the previous day's writing. But I think that a process like that is very useful to the to the author. It's a way to improve on your craft uh, as you go without b burdening yourself with um, trying to edit as you write. Editing as you write is a mistake. Um, it will always exponentially increase the amount of time it takes to actually write the book. Not not double, not triple. It will exponentially increase how the amount of time it takes to finish. Uh, and it will exponentially increase the odds that you won't finish at all. So your, your best plan is to, you know, if you can shut that editor off entirely, um, do it, write the book and then edit. If you have trouble turning off that inner editor, inner editor, inner editor, I will get this right. Inner editor. Uh, if you have trouble turning that off while you write, then at least placate them long enough for you to get through 500 words or so before you go back and let them play. Um, if you'll do that, 
you'll have a much better manuscript. You'll, it'll require less editing when you're done. Uh, and you'll actually improve your craft much quicker than you would uh, otherwise. Um, they say that, and I know, Melinda, I'm sorry. You gave me the mic, and now I'm going to just talk forever. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but they say the first million words are practice, you know. Um, to get those million words, it really just is a matter of coming back to the keyboard every single day. That's how you improve your craft. Read books on craft. Every I've committed to once a quarter, uh, so once every three months or so, I read a book on craft. I have a whole list of books, types of books I read throughout each quarter. I read one craft book. I read one, um, one or two usually uh, books on history or science or both. Uh, you know, I read I read for pleasure. You know, I've got a whole list of books that I read. Reading is the is one of the best ways, especially once you've started writing full time. Reading is one of the best ways to uh, learn how to to hone your craft because you can see how others are doing it and you can you can sort of imitate that, uh, use it as practice. So, reading and writing, man, who knew? Those are the two <laughs> the two go to components for improving your writing. Yeah, I'm writing. I'm taking so many notes here, guys, that um, Kevin just keeps. Uh, um, what what did um, JLD would call it? Delivering value bombs. Uh, but yeah. what what Kevin's saying is is right, everyone. We've got a narrative um, framework over here at uh, Writer on the Road, the Voices in Your Head, and we push our our students to write through to the very end in draft mode before they let their critical brain in. You're you're actually a little right. bit more generous than me in that you let it in every five hundred words or so. I well, I, I had to, <laughs> I had to start letting people well. You, if you read, I'm sure, I think you did. Uh, in my book, 30 Day Author, I flat out tell people do not edit at all. Write your, you know, tw if you only write 250 words a day, you write those words and you don't edit them until you finish the book. Um, but I had to kind of give a little on that because there are the, there are those people, and I've become one of them, I think. There are those people who just can't let that bad writing sit for weeks or months or whatever. They have to go back and and fix it now. So yeah. it's, it's there an you interesting, go. There's it's, your, yep. It's an olive branch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone, I am, I am so hardcore on this one. Um, maybe I will soften or mellow with age. I think, I think it's too late. I've gotten too old. Um, but I've forgotten what I was going to say. Yeah. And that's nothing unusual. Okay. Drafting through to the end. My, my biggest problem with people who edit as they go and polish those three chapters um, as much as they can is that you may get to the end of the book, everyone, and find out that what you started out telling in your story is, is going to be ditched anyway. So you may be wasting your time with all that beautiful polishing because sometimes your stories take a direction and a life of their own uh, that you need to take advantage of. You need to listen to and you need to to follow those instincts um, as you go. And I think that's what Kevin's right. been saying. You, I want to move directly into your writing now and your writing process. Uh, you are... Uh, writing your new book and the title is The Antarctic Forgery and I can't wait to see the cover on it. Tell me about your research for this one because I know um, Kevin's got a very science, um, scientific brain, everybody, and a very inquiring brain and loves archaeology and all those kinds of things. As soon as I saw the um, Antarctic Forgery, I thought I've got to ask you about your research. <laughs> the uh, I, So I, the ideas for my books come from all over the place. And um, there's no like one method really, um, but I 
I tend to read a lot of history books. I tend to read a, read a lot of biographies. Uh, and I, 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 I keep a running note of just articles. Articles of interest is the actual name of the note. I use Apple Note. And uh, I, if I start seeing some similar trends in articles that I'm clipping, I know that I'm on to the path of a book, you know. Uh, and over the space of, a, of two or three months, I actually grabbed articles and, and some book excerpts from a handful of books that were about uh, Antarctic expeditions that had little oddities. Uh, one was an article about a giant hole that has mysteriously opened up in the Antarctic. Um, I clipped an article about the uh, the pier map, which was the uh, – this map is legendary. If you study cartography or history uh, history of cartography or anything like that at all, um, the Piri Reef map is a, um, a map drawn in the 1500s of Antarctica uh, showing it without ice and uh, a couple of centuries before it was officially discovered. <laughs> so – you know, reading about that, um, reading articles, I read about a kid who uh, uh, stowed away on an Antarctic expedition from Australia. Um, I uh, read about Darwin using the Antarctic as one of his testing grounds for his theories of evolution. You know, all these things, I, I noticed I was clipping a lot of these kind of articles. Um, if you've read any of the Dan Kotler books, you know that I, I, I play around with what I call misplaced history. Uh, there's a, usually... Some these are archaeological thrillers. I have official name for this now, thanks to my good friend uh, Ernest Dempsey, uh, who also writes archaeological thrillers and is excellent. But uh, these are they look at a an aspect of history and then I connect it to some modern day drama, um, a, cons a, a conspiracy, a, a terrorist attack, or whatever. The research for uh, it, uh, the Antarctic forgery is has mostly it's been piecemeal over the past almost almost five years, just random things I've, I've uncovered. I, I have to confess, I don't really have that much of an interest in Antarctica because it's just it's never really appealed to me because it's a wasteland. But the idea that, you know, there are there are literally Nazi subs buried under the ice there. There are uh, Darwin discovered all sorts of interesting things. You know, there are all sorts of weird little notes in his journals about Antarctica. There's there's a there's a weird history there. There's no way I was not going to explore this. <laughs> so, yeah. So my method of research is I, I read a lot of books and I read a lot of articles um, and, I, and then I catch the occasional television documentary or something, you know, uh, and all that gels together. And then I go and. I confirm some things and then I make up a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is really rich stuff, everybody. This is not an author who churns out a book every three months. This is an author who dwells on his ideas for, for years sometimes and does the research. Uh, make, my, make no mistake, um, Kevin is an intellect and I don't want him to answer that one because he'll go crook on me. But being able to, to search and hunt and peck and pull those clues together takes time. And that's another little bunny of ours over here at Rider on the Road. Being a good writer, being a thoughtful writer, allowing your subconscious to do the work, it, it requires time, thought and effort. And that's what I wanted this podcast to be all about. You've heard it from Kevin himself. This is what goes into making a best-selling book or, or a top-notch book. You cannot churn these things out uh, and then push them off and go on to the next one. It doesn't work that way. You, you should have fun with it, though. 
Like this should be fun. The research is it should be the most fun part. Um, sure, well, maybe writing the book itself can be equally as fun. But I, I, you know, the I love the writing part. But I, I probably if someone would just pay me to do it, I'd sit around reading books and articles about various parts of history all day long. And this is the closest I can get to that as a job. Uh, reading it and then writing about it. <laughs> yeah, and we don't even want to open up that um, research um, bandwagon, do we, everybody, because I know we have a tendency to research forever and never actually do any writing. My favourite spot in yeah. the whole world is the State Library's archives, and I, if I had my way, I'd just stay there forever. Uh, yeah. And now yeah. I've moved into my Brisbane City Chick flat and I'm writing a book about um, the early days of Brisbane. I actually spend all my time walking around the streets of Brisbane instead of writing. So so, look, you can have fun with it, but at some stage you've actually got to sit down and do the work. Um, you do. Yeah. 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 So if I yeah. asked you. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, I was, I'll throw this in and I won't talk forever. <laughs> I love it when you talk forever. Um, you know that. <laughs> you you can uh, – the, the, the hardest part on me is when I've done a bunch of research, I write the book, I publish the book, and then – you know, two months after I published the book, I stumble across something else that would have been great for the book. Um, that's where the danger of researching forever can come in. Now, with the power of iterative publishing, you could go back and add to that book if you wanted to. I have a tendency to, to put that aside and say, I'll just do a follow-up book later. <laughs> or a short story. Kevin's very, very good on short stories. A short story. Yeah, or novellas mm -hmm. they call them now, and then they charge lots of money from like about 2 or $3. dollars uh, <laughs> Yeah. Now, this is the question that I was about to ask you. What is the one thing that you have learnt over the process of even this one series? I keep referring to the thriller series, guys, because I just can't engage with science fiction, but I will one day when I grow up. What is the one thing you've learnt over this thriller series that you wish you'd known at the beginning? The, I'm, honestly, the very first thing, the, the biggest thing, is I wish I had known from the beginning just how popular thrillers were and how easy it would be to make a living with those stories. Um, because I loved reading thrillers. It kind of hit me late in my career that what I wrote, really, the science fiction and, and the stories that I wrote were really thrillers anyway. Um, but they, because they involved a spaceship or an alien... You know, they didn't fit. They didn't fit the tropes of thrillers, and then I would have people just just decide they couldn't read it because they didn't like science fiction. Uh, people who have no problem reading my thrillers now wouldn't try the science fiction because uh, it had aliens or something in it. Uh, so that's that's one thing. I also, it, it's hard to answer this question by the way straight because there isn't anything that I wish I had known then that I know now in regards to the writing. I, I am grateful for the process of discovery I went through as I improved my writing. Um, uh, if I hadn't done it that way, I, I, there would be something missing from my work now that I think is integral uh, and, and core to, uh, to the types of stories I tell. Um, but lessons I've learned in this, uh, for, for a start... Um, you know, doing your research is important. I used to not bother so much with research. I, 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 I've always been a reader. I've always absorbed information. So it's, it's been easy for me to regurgitate that in the form of story. Um, paying more attention to, uh, 
characterization has really helped the work. Paying more attention to, you know, these these little details, um, giving the reader these sort of cliffhanger beats uh, that draw them from one chapter to another. You know, how to how to keep this story going. What, what we'll call I actually now refer to as open loops to steal from the marketing world. You know, I create open loops in every chapter so that the reader is compelled to read to the next chapter. Um, and, uh, you know, I steal uh, James Patterson's advice of, you know, you write every chapter as if it was the first chapter. Um, you know, I introduce elements, I set things up, I set, I create the setting, I do all the things I would do in the first chapter and I don't take anything for granted. You know, each chapter can essentially more or less could stand on its own as a short story if it had to. Wow. <laughs> uh, so they, they get a complete story, but there's an open loop in that story that compels them to read on. Uh, I've also experimented with that in the, the total of the books. I've, uh, each book since the second in this series, I've included an open loop that I've just kept teasing and teasing through each of the uh, subsequent books that I'm now paying off in this fifth book. Um, and I know a lot of readers are going to be very happy about that. There are some readers who cannot stand the idea of an unresolved plot point in a book, and they will leave. Um, I refer to those readers as uh, the I have a pet name for them. My pet name for those readers is not my reader because my readers want to be teased a little. They want to be excited by the idea of I have to buy the next book to uh, to find out what happened to Dan and, and Gail McCarthy. You know, I have to know I have to watch this progress and I have to know how it turns out. Uh, now, you can do that. And I don't think you should do that forever. But I'm, I stretched this story out over three books, <laughs> and I'm answering it in a fourth book, and I, I feel like I've got the right rhythm with that. I did have, I've had two or three readers write. One reader in particular was kind of grumbling about it, but then he gave me a five-star review. So uh, I don't think he was too upset about it. <laughs> uh, I tried to give you a five-star review last night, but something went wrong with my Amazon, so I'll have to try again today. Now, that old excuse. <laughs> oh, Amazon went, went south. The five so stars worked. Star. No, the five stars worked, just not the comment. I don't know what I was doing wrong. I think because I was on my iPad and not my computer. So keep that in mind, everybody, when you're giving reviews. They work much better on a desktop. Uh, now, what Kevin was referring to there uh, with that plot is his new book, the uh, uh, the Antarctic forgery is is resolving a plot that she, he started several books earlier and with a with a minor character called Gail, and his readers nagged him enough that he's finally given her her own book. So if you go back and start this series from the beginning, you actually have to wait till the next book to see that uh, plot line resolved. Um, do you do but you... it is resolved. I will promise that. It will be resolved in this book. And then a whole new uh plot will open up. Yeah. Sorry. And and look, <laughs> God knows where Kevin will take us next. But uh, you, you're working with an incisive mind here. He makes it sound very, very easy. Research can get carried away. You can get sidetracked. Um, I'm guessing you have to stay on track. You have to keep writing. You have to write every day, and you have to push that story forward. It's it's exciting times in the indie publishing world. Uh, just to round off, because I know we've got to quickly talk about draft to digital uh, what do you see as um, the future of the growth of indie publishing? Um. 
there's there are a lot of directions this can go. I I think audiobooks are going to play a huge role in indie publishing. Uh, you know, Draft Digital we have our partner Find Away Voices now, so that indies have a lot more control and ownership over their audiobooks. Um, I know that Joanna Penn is has been uh, pushing the idea of the um, the smart speakers like Alexa and you know the Google Home speaker and that sort of thing um, as a uh, really a more interactive version of books, almost like a choose your own adventure, but you do it, you know, through audio interaction. Um, you know, I think audio is going to play a huge role in, in indie publishing over the next two years. I don't even think it's going to be five years. I think a year from now, we're going to hear so much more about this and it's a wide open space for indies right now. You it's, it's the early days of Kindle publishing, you know, right now, you, it's the same thing that we experienced back in 2008. So, you know, there was a whole gold rush of content back then. I think now authors have become so much more savvy about business practices and marketing, about uh, production and uh, high value for co- their content and their production value. I think that uh, now we're just in this unique place where the indie could overtake the traditional world in a way that's never been possible before. Um because there's not as much competition in in the audio market, uh, that's one one thing that I see in the future of indie. Um, I think that we're going to see a shift away from because for the past few years, about the past five years, there's been a real trend towards the internet marketing model, um, sort of the same model you see with these guys who want to sell you a slick course or, you know, they're selling intellectual property, but it's very internet marketing speak, very uh, highly polished stuff. I personally feel, and I'm 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 exemplifying this, I think, uh, with my shift in marketing, but I personally feel that we're going to see a a shift towards much more personable, relatable marketing. Where the authors, um, the authors who value their readership the most, win. Uh, not that there's any competition, but the ones who want to have a lifelong, lasting career, and they have a personal sort of relationship with their readers. Um, I think those are the ones that are going to have the most success, and I think that we're going to see direct sales become a bigger deal. Um, I know that Johnny Andrews, uh, the, from author platform rocket, uh, he is pushing his authors to go out there and create direct sale platforms through Gumroad or, you know, whatever, uh, book funnel, uh, use book funnel. I, I re- highly recommend book funnel. Damon Courtney, good friend of mine lives, lives five miles away from me, uh, <laughs> here in this, uh, Texas. And, uh, the, that tool is going to allow, it now allows authors to sell directly to their readership. This is how you you shore up against the inevitable collapse of KDP Select, and I, no one likes to hear that. But one day it will end. <laughs> so the way you shore up against it is you you concentrate on building as faithful a readership as you can build. You have a very personal relationship with these people. I got thirty five thousand people on my mailing list. More now. Um, and if any given one of them ever emails me at any time, I respond. I, I cheer them on in their, the successes of their life. I sympathize with them in the uh, the down portions of their life. Um, I don't spam them every week. You've seen the emails, Melinda. I mean, I don't ask. I will. I will work in a, a you know. Hey, if you haven't read the book, here's the link. That's usually buried somewhere down in the email. 
And everything up to that is, here's what I've been reading this week. Here's a study I found on LIDAR that you you might find interesting. Here's an author I've I've met in his work, you know. Um, I think that that's the future of marketing for authors, is that we start to really take, we stop taking for granted that the readers are there just to buy our work and that they are human beings that we care about and we can interact with. And I think that's going to lead into a whole new world. Direct sales, I think, will be a huge move forward for all authors, indie or otherwise. Being able to own your product 100%, get 100% of the royalty from it, minus 3% handling is what's going to prevent us from folding if something like KDP goes under if the whole wide marketing movement ends, you know, if anything goes wrong, having that that direct relationship with your readers and a direct sales tool is going to be um, the way we survive. But yeah. that sounds darker than I mean it to. I actually think we're going to see booming success over the next two to three years. Uh, I just th- feel that it's also going to lead to us to seizing more control of our market rather than relying on third parties for everything. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually really, really exciting, Kevin. I've been doing a lot of internet marketing training, Facebook ads and all that kind of stuff, yeah. and I've just, I'm actively rejecting uh, what I'm learning because I think Facebook and Instagram and those, I think we mentioned it earlier in the podcast, have had their day because you scroll through now and it's mostly advertising. It's mostly right. sponsored stuff. It's, And I'm going, why are we reading all this stuff? Um, or then you'll read about someone's dog who died and you go, why am I reading this stuff? So it's, <laughs> it's very easy to turn off from that impersonal stuff now. I think building a community, as you said, is, is critical. And the other thing everybody is you link up with people who have um, mailing lists of 35,000 people. Now, we had Tracy Peterson on the uh, podcast the other week and she has 20,000 people, I think, on her mailing list. Kevin has 35,000 people on his mailing list. Combine that with my 100, I am going to get these two authors and I'm going to work with them because I will then have 50,000 people to market to. I think, yeah, I think collaboration has got to be right up there, hasn't it? Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. I, we, we, the great thing about being an author is it's the kind of business you can have where you're not actually in competition with anybody. You, you can actually build uh, your product and advertise your product and send it to the exact same people who are buying. My, for with me, it would be like I send books to people who would also buy books by Steve Barry or James Rollins or Dan Brown. And they let out, they release a new book, and it doesn't impact me at all. Dan Brown, who who has hundreds of millions more readers than I do, and hundreds of millions of more dollars than I have, um, he and I can release a book on the same day, and I'll get the same number of sales I would have gotten otherwise, because the people who buy my books love love my work. Even if they also buy Dan Brown books, they're not going to choose between me and Dan Brown. They're going to they're going to say I can get both a Kevin Tomlinson book and a Dan Brown book today. Kevin's book is you know going to be a little cheaper than Dan Brown's, so they'll buy me first. That's my that's my working theory. <laughs> and that's um, another advantage of indie publishing. Everybody, if I see a traditionally published ebook for what fourteen dollars, I don't even go yes. there. Indie publishing has that price point, and thank heavens you're starting to get a little bit more, uh, I guess, return on your work. I noticed. I think yours was about in Australian dollars. I think it was about six or seven dollars. It's better yeah. than the two dollars that we were getting, and I think six or seven dollars for a well-researched, well-written book is still cheapest chips 
Yeah, should I price lower for Australia? I don't mind. Should I bring it down? Like I, I, I I control my pricing. I, I I let it auto set my prices most of the time, so it's probably all wrong. But uh, and I do think you should tailor your pricing to the market that it's appearing in. So maybe I should work on uh, Australian pricing. Yeah, owe me a glass of wine now. That's the only solution I can come up with. Uh, I don't even. <laughs> All right, I've got to let this man go because it's it's late at night in in his place, and my kids have just gone off to school. Is there That's one last so thing? It's like three in the afternoon here. Ah, oh, I thought it's... it was midnight at least. <laughs> I'm not even going know. to tell anybody. Okay, um, yeah, just to finish off because um, again we have taken up Kevin's time, and I will get him back because he's always doing something interesting. Um, he always catches my eye, and obviously a bit of a trendsetter in the indie indie publishing world. I think that new personal approach is really really important, and we should all listen to Kevin when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, have a look at his Wordslinger uh, podcast because I'm sure there'll be more things coming out on that one. Yes. But I just wanted to. There was some stuff happening in draft to digital can you very quickly in two minutes flat tell us what's um happening in in draft to digital that we have to know i'll tell you this this within the next week and to a week and a half we are going to release something we're calling author book or author pages and book tabs the author pages are the thing that we think has been missing uh, it is a it's a central uh, page that where you can list all your books. We'll do it for you automatically. If you if you distribute through us, it's very easy. But even if you don't, uh, we use the universal book links that are very popular, and you can actually include your books from other services. Even if you're not a draft to digital author, you can have an entire list of your books there, one central place, customizable with your bio, your picture, um, little sales tags, all kinds of really cool features. The book tabs are a book page where your your book gets its the same treatment. It gets its, its uh, description, which is you can change the format on. Uh, you get a cover. You get uh, if it's part of a series, it'll list out the series. And so what we've built are tools that aid in discoverability for authors. Those are the big things that are coming. Some other stuff that's coming up. We got um, we've got a print solution that's coming up. And it's going to be epic. Uh, it includes not just paperbacks, but hardbacks, which is very popular uh, and a very much in demand. So uh, it'll be a, a, our, our sort of own version of publishing on demand. Uh, little tools like that. This year is all about increasing discoverability and increasing your range as an author at draft to digital So you, if you're not signed up, you should go check it out. You, there's no no money to, to invest. There's no, you know, you don't have to distribute through us. You can use our free tools without uh, without having to distribute through us if you don't want to. I keep saying that, but we also would like for you to distribute to us. That's how we make our money. We don't make any money unless you distribute your book through us. So uh, we want to make sure you succeed so that we can make as much money as we possibly can. So. Yeah, We're and since I've, been, yeah, since I've been having Kevin on the podcast, everybody, uh, Draft to Digital has just gone to, uh, from strength to strength. It's just amazing. I use I use Draft to Digital uh, to to I've put up our little uh, voices in your head writing guidelines, and uh, Draft to Digital formatted it for me, gave gave it a lovely shape, 
and then I just um, pump it out to my email uh, subscribers through BookFunnel. BookFunnel is the other thing. I got an email from them. They're doing some amazing stuff over there as well, and they're getting better as well. Uh, one day I might even publish something with draft to digital but that's what that's what this year's all about, everybody. I'm actually going to start publishing some stuff. I think I said that with you last time. Kevin. Excellent. Haven't got around to it yet. All right, so find Kevin at... KevinTomlinson.com is my site and Draft2Digital.com, Draft2Digital.com. That's for D2D. And uh, Wordslinger Podcast is WordslingerPodcast.com. Yeah, and keep an eye out on his um, indie publishing guides because they'll be full of full of wonderful stuff that we need to know yeah, about. Yeah, a lot more of those coming. Uh, yeah. I, I've got another one that's in, in the works right now. I'm trying to do one or two of those a month if I can. Yeah, oh, this guy, just would you stop being so prolific? You're putting me to shame. All right, okay, thanks, Kevin. Love you as always, and we'll uh, talk to you again next time. That's bye from Rider on the Road. 